When you contribute your fixed income deals to Refinitiv, they'll reach over half a million buy and sell side professionals around the world and be included in our industry-leading league table rankings. To ensure we're capturing your entire deal flow, visit contribute.refinitiv.com forward slash FI sign up or contact our team at contribute at refinitive.com. Make your deal count. Earlier on today, apparently a woman rang the BBC and said she heard that there was a hurricane on the way. Well, if you're watching, don't worry, there isn't. Michael Fish never would recover from what was supposed to be a light-hearted segue into the lunchtime weather. Within hours of him appearing on national TV to dismiss talk of a hurricane, London was hit by the biggest storm in 300 years. For the first time since the Blitz, the city was plunged into darkness. 18 people lost their lives. Fish would later argue that it wasn't actually a hurricane, but that didn't change a thing. The damage to his reputation was done. But he wasn't the only one making a terrible miscalculation on that wet and windy Thursday in October 1987. Across town, a crowd of bankers were leaving the Rothschilds' offices in the heart of the city. Despite the weather, they were all in high spirits, having just signed the biggest deal of their careers. They'd been chosen by the UK government to sell its entire stake in British Petroleum. At £7.2 billion, it was set to be the biggest share sale ever. Their euphoria wouldn't last for long. Another storm was about to hit that would expose huge mistakes made by the banks. Mistakes that would leave them facing hundreds of millions of pounds in losses. Within days, a battle would break out between the banks and the government that would eventually draw in the White House. As the crisis reached its peak, one firm would even be left facing collapse. I mean, it was sheer arrogance on his part that he thought he'd get away with this. I felt my whole career flashing across in front of me. Within a day or two, it was pretty clear that we were dealing with a very severe market situation. This is the story of how the biggest share sale in history went spectacularly wrong. I'm Gareth Gore, and this is The Syndicate from IFR. When the government first announced plans to sell BP shares as part of the March 1987 budget, few were taken by surprise. For many, it was just the latest in a long line of asset sales. Since taking power in 1979, the Conservative government had transferred vast swathes of British industry from public to private ownership. British Telecom, British Gas, British Airways and Rolls-Royce had all been successfully listed on the London Stock Exchange. Many smaller companies had also been sold off. Government laboratories, shipyards, hotels, ferry services, as well as bus and truck factories. The sales had raised more than £18 billion for the Treasury, equivalent to more than £50 billion today. For Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, the sales were about much more than the money. She saw them as ushering in a new wave of popular capitalism that would sweep the UK and the world. This government has rolled back the frontiers of the state and will roll them back still further. And so popular is our policy that it's being taken up all over the world from France to the Philippines, from Jamaica to Japan, from Malaysia to Mexico, from Sri Lanka to Singapore. Privatisation is on the move. But while Thatcher and her government were keen to frame the BP sale through that same prism of privatisation, that wasn't the whole story. In fact, the privatisation of BP had begun more than a decade earlier, under a very different government. 
1976, with the UK facing a balance of payments crisis, the then Labour Prime Minister Jim Callaghan turned to the IMF for help. After months of talks, it agreed to a £4 billion bailout, on the condition that the government take drastic actions to close the fiscal deficit. The conditions of the IMF bailout put the government in a difficult position. Desperate to avoid cuts to public spending, which would have triggered a huge backlash, Callaghan asked his cabinet to find alternatives. The sale of shares that the government owned in British Petroleum was quickly identified as one possible option. The stake dated back to 1913, when a young Winston Churchill, then First Lord of the Admiralty, struck a deal with the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, the company that became BP. The government bought new shares in the company in exchange for a guaranteed supply of oil for the British Navy. By 1976, the government owned 68% of BP. Treasury officials proposed an elegant solution to the IMF problem, selling the stake down to 51%. That would raise more than £500 million for the government, filling a big hole in the deficit. But critically, Keeping its stake above 50% meant it wouldn't lose any power in the decision-making process at the company. I was working for a relatively small breaking firm called JNA Scrimger, who, while small, had a few very important clients and were the lead broker to BP. That's Simon Kearns, who was a young stockbroker at the time. He was approached by BP, which had got wind of the government's plans and spotted an opportunity. The oil producer was expanding into the US at the time, developing vast oil fields in Alaska, and it was keen to engineer any government sale so that some of the shares would end up in American hands and cement its standing in the country. BP had already sounded out some of the big US banks about how to go about selling shares in London and New York at the same time, but the feedback wasn't good. All said, can't be done. Our markets are incompatible and exchange control regulations were still in place which made the whole thing that bit more difficult. Cairns discovered that the simultaneous cross-border sale might breach rules set by the US stock market regulator, the SEC. Normally, equity deals in the London market would be underwritten by a group of leading banks. Before the actual sale, they would parcel out the shares to a group of sub-underwriters as a way of spreading the risk. The sub-underwriters would in turn divide those shares between the jobbers, who would be the ones that actually sold the shares on the exchange. But US Regulation 10b6 made it illegal to sell shares ahead of their release onto the public market. The rule was meant to prevent insider trading, but made the traditional UK underwriting process impossible. Kearns and his Morgan Stanley counterpart sought to find a way around the rules. I remember a great evening, actually, in Claridge's Hotel with Fred Whittemore, who always travelled in style. And their principal lawyer, Sam Pryor of Davis Polk, who had been key to all our discussions over the previous months, probably a year or so. And I remember him being on the phone to Stanley Sporkin, who was the head of the SEC, to get him to see whether we could have an arrangement whereby the London market, the jobbers, would be instructed that on the final day of the offering, their book should be no different from what it was when the thing was announced, and they must either buy or sell shares in order that they were not out of line. They weren't, as it were, making a false market. For Mr Sporkin, this was stretching 
10b6 to a point that I don't think he'd ever tried before. But anyway, they agreed. As the deal came together, tempers started to fray. We had this practice in Freshfields for the Bank of England, Mayo for the company, Sam Pryor for Morgan Stanley, arguing over this prospectus. Fred Whittemore and I were sitting there together. He leant over to me and said, Gee, Simon, this is like a fight between a skunk and your mother-in-law. You don't care who wins. The size of the deal also presented a problem. At £560 million, which would be about £4 billion today, the share sale risked putting too much stress on the market. When the deal finally launched in the summer of 1977, there was a great deal of nervousness. Cairns, who, remember, had come up with various adjustments so that the deal could be sold to UK and US investors at the same time, didn't know whether his plan would work. A simultaneous cross-border sale like this had never been tried before. The show was on the road, and in due course, the subscriptions or book building, wherever it was happening went somewhat better than I had anticipated. And I remember having bets with the FT that they said, this can't possibly work, and I said, it will. And we had a lot of fun during that period, and it was essentially a blowout. The 1977 deal would revolutionise how future cross-border equity deals were done. But its impact wasn't limited to the world of finance. At the time, Adam Ridley was part of a small think tank within the opposition Conservative Party that had been tasked with coming up with ideas for revitalising the UK economy. The group was keen to reverse various nationalisations made by the Labour government in the 1970s. For Ridley, the BP sale opened the door to going much further, to actually selling off a wide range of public assets. It's been pretty obvious for a long time that you could sell it. I mean, it just confirmed that it was politically much more easy. But I think one of the most important things as you went through the 70s was that the confrontation between labour policies and what one might call the brutal realities of events as they unfolded progressively made it much easier to do things which might, in the 60s, have been thought outrageous or at least very, very extreme. And that would be a good example. It opened the door. The 1977 sale would also turn BP into something of a piggy bank for the UK government, a rainy day fund to raid when times were hard. When the Conservatives won the 1979 election, with public finances in a dire state, plans were quickly drawn up to sell another chunk of the company. But Thatcher was nervous. She was worried about taking the government's stake below 50%, which might reduce its influence over the vital oil sector. But... Given the state of government finances and a lack of alternative assets to sell, she relented, signing off on the sale of a further 5% of the company. Then again in 1983, with government finances hit hard by the deep recession ravaging the country, the government sold another 7% stake. By 1987, raiding the BP piggy bank was already a well-worn path. And, as had happened on previous occasions, the 1987 sale was born out of a political and economic necessity rather than an ideological desire to return BP to the private sector. While it is true that the government had a big privatisation programme in place, BP was never part of it. For Ridley and his team, the oil company was already a well-run business. We wanted to effect substantial changes 
in the incentive structures facing the companies concerned and bring about improved performance and advance the whole spirit of privatisation. And the point about the BP sale was that, in a sense, it's rather like selling gilts. It wasn't going to make a great difference to the way the company behaved. BP was suddenly thrust onto the agenda when plans to sell off the water industry hit big problems at the beginning of 1987. The delay left Chancellor Nigel Lawson with a big hole in his budget. The timing couldn't have been worse, coming just as the government was laying the ground for an election that was to be called in the spring. Lawson had hoped to use the proceeds from the water privatisation to fund big tax cuts ahead of the election, but problems with the sale left him facing a big shortfall in the budget. Once again, the BP piggy bank came to the rescue. But this time, the ambition was grander. The government would sell all of its remaining stake, just over 30% of the company, in one enormous deal. Just as had happened in 1977, the oil company lobbied hard to sell a large chunk of the shares abroad. Its operations overseas had grown dramatically in the 10 years since that deal. And by 1987, its ambitions for the show sale were even bigger. As well as selling shares in the US, it wanted to open the sale to investors in Canada, Japan and across Europe. David Simon, BP's chief financial officer at the time. The choice of which markets the shares would be sold into was basically to reflect the asset base that we were developing in those markets because of the trade-off between having shareholders in markets where you are coming face-to-face with government on a regular basis for a whole plethora of reasons. But it's best with governments to say, if necessary, hang on, I have a lot of shareholders here who are voters for you, and therefore it's important that they're taken into account. Making the deal international would also serve another purpose. £7.2 billion, which would be over £20 billion today, The proposed deal would be the biggest share sale ever done anywhere in the world. Selling a large chunk of the shares overseas would avoid putting too much stress on the London market. The government hired Rothschilds to manage the deal and brought in Slaughter and May for legal advice. Giles Henderson, who was a lawyer at the firm, had advised the government on the sale of British Telecom in 1984 and on the sale of British Gas in 1986. Both had seen large chunks of the shares on offer sold to US investors. But even 10 years on from the groundbreaking 1977 deal, the process of simultaneously underwriting a share sale across jurisdictions was still causing problems. The enormity of the problem came up comparatively late in the day on telecom when they suddenly realised that the UK and the US, that their procedures and timing of the sale were different and there was therefore likely to be, there could be, a gap which would be very unfortunate between the commitment of the UK underwriters and the US ones. The big problem was that the SEC might halt a sale at the last minute, leaving UK underwriters, who tend to commit to a deal far earlier, having to proceed when the US tranche had been pulled. There is the possibility of the SEC issuing what's called a stop order where after they've approved it, they say, oi, we've found something or something's happened and we're going to stop the effectiveness of the registration statement. And if that happens under traditional US underwriting, they're off the hook because the SEC has said so. Now, that didn't fit at all with the UK. And bear in mind, this is the UK government 
selling huge sums of money and a lot of members of the British public being involved. So the idea that you could have the UK uh, people all locked in and yet this big chunk that was being sold via the US underwriters was open and not yet closed off as a final deal was very uncomfortable. So on the British Gas Beauty Contest, I presented to the government what I thought they should do, which is to go to the international underwriters and persuade them that because of the size of the deal that they were talking about, and more to come because it was already being talked about the possibility of electricity, water, heaven knows what, this was enormous business for these people. And I said to the government, I thought they should persuade the international underwriters to adjust their processes in a way that made them go unconditional, as we lawyers say, go committed at the same time as the UK underwriters. It's worth remembering, by that time, the UK government had already had a number of big privatisation successes. With those successes under its belt, the UK government was becoming increasingly confident about making demands from the banks and refining the process. On Henderson's advice, it demanded that the foreign underwriters go committed at the same time as their UK counterparts. It was a decision the banks would deeply regret. Henderson also got the underwriters to agree to an additional concession, something that would also end up costing them dearly. The normal in those days for underwriting agreements was that the underwriters would have the discretion, basically, to say, in view of adverse market conditions, uh, we can't go ahead. So it was pretty one-sided in favour of underwriters before. And that's what the government, A being the government, B being the size of the share sales and the other ones coming, etc., and the political framework that a government sale and what's more a government privatisation sale was taking place that we can't have this situation where underwriters are having the say as to whether or not a market condition has been sufficient to cause this thing to uh, have to be cancelled. Henderson proposed a clause which stated that the banks could only pull out of their commitment by invoking the so-called force majeure if the government agreed. An arbitration mechanism was also inserted should there be a disagreement with the Bank of England which back then was basically an arm of the Treasury, having the final say should the two parties be in conflict. Again, agreeing to that concession would backfire massively for the banks when the deal eventually got into trouble. In a sign of just how aggressive the government had become, Chancellor Nigel Lawson also decided to rip up the traditional set fee structure and instead asked the banks to submit bids. With everyone, or almost everyone, keen to be part of the deal, the bids were extremely low. John Knott, who was chairman of Lazard, thought Lawson was pushing the banks too far. Uh, the problem with Nigel, who was a great friend of mine, I, I like him very much and I think he was an excellent chancellor. He'd been a, a financial journalist uh, for a good many years before he became a politician. And he thought he knew the city. And because he knew the city and he became chancellor, he thought that he could get away with carving the underwriting fees to nothing. I mean, it was sheer arrogance on his part that he thought he'd get away with this. He would have got away with it if the market hadn't collapsed about two weeks later with the crash. 
Lazard, long seen as part of the club that dominated the city of London, decided to sit the deal out. It decided that the fees of just 0.018% being offered to the UK primary underwriters are record low and less than one-sixth of what they'd been paid on the BP show sale in 1983 was simply too low to justify the risk being taken on. As Nott recalls, when he broke the news to Michael Richardson, who was overseeing the transaction for the leader ranger Rothschilds, it did not go down at all well. I said, I'm sorry, Michael, we, Lazard are just not going to take the, the underwriting. And he said, well, look, Lazard always take underwriting. You're part of the club. You realise that in the Treasury, if you start turning down underwritings, you don't get offered them again. And I said, well, I realise that, but we always take underwriting, but I'm not going to take a, an underwriting free because the Chancellor thinks that he can get it away for no money. And so I turned it down. That was viewed very, very badly. Michael Richardson clearly got hold of the Treasury and the Governor of the Bank of England. So I then had a, a telephone call from the Governor, and the Governor said to me, he was very, very charming about it, he said, you know, Lazard are part of the underwriting system in the city, and you're a well-known leading bank, and if the underwriters start turning down the underwriting, it places a question over the whole system. So I said, well, I quite understand, Governor, and I don't want to be difficult about it, but I'm not going to take a huge multi-million pound risk for no money. Other banks weren't so cautious. Most piled into the deal. They'd given in to the government and its demands on fees, on force majeure, and, for the international banks, on going committed. Each of those concessions would make the pain that much worse when the crash eventually came. As we heard at the start of this episode, on the evening of October 15th, the underwriters gathered at Rothschilds to sign the agreement, which tied them into paying the government £7.2 billion in proceeds from the shares that they would later sell. That night, of course, the storm hit. But the destruction and disruption caused by the weather would very quickly become the least of their problems. The London market was closed the next day because of the huge disruptions in the city. But around the world, a major sell-off was underway. Good evening. The headlines at six o'clock. The stock market has never had a worse day. £50 billion has been wiped off the value of shares and there's been panic selling on Wall Street and around the world. On the Monday, when the London market reopened, the FTSE fell by more than 10%, the biggest one-day drop in history. The record didn't hold for long. On Tuesday, the sell-off was even worse. With the market in freefall, crisis meetings soon took over, as lawyer Giles Henderson recalls. Within a day or two, it was pretty clear that we were dealing with a very severe market situation. And so there then started to be a series of almost continuous meetings at the Treasury. The US banks were in particular trouble. Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, Morgan Stanley and Salomon Brothers had been hired to sell about a quarter of all the shares on offer. Unlike their British counterparts, which had sub-underwritten much of their commitments, as per the tradition, in the US, those four banks were on the hook for the entire £1.8 billion tranche. As the share price tumbled, they were sitting on losses of over £100 million each. James Long was a business and economics correspondent for the BBC. 
he soon began to hear rumours that the sale might be called off. Then there's the question mark now hanging over the BP share sale. Today, the share price dropped well below the 330 pence offer price revealed so grandly last week, raising the possibility that with no quick profit in view, investors could decide to give it a miss. This afternoon, Rothschilds, the merchant bankers handling the sale, came to the Treasury to meet officials and take stock. There were even rumours this morning that the sale could yet be called off. I understand that's unlikely today, but if the stock market plunge continues for the rest of the week, a decision could yet be made as late as next Monday. Having been keen to make concessions to the UK government just a week earlier, the Americans now frantically looked for a way out. They lobbied James Baker, the US Treasury Secretary, who called UK Chancellor Nigel Lawson to ask him to call off the deal. When that didn't work, the White House got involved, imploring Downing Street to intervene and rein in a Chancellor who was insisting on holding the banks to their commitments. Meanwhile, in the city, there were rumours that the US banks were dumping BP shares in the market in an effort to push down the share price further and force the government's hand. As a legal advisor to the government, it was a tense time for Giles Henderson. It was exciting, nerve-wracking for the person who had drafted with colleagues this agreement because I felt my whole career flashing across in front of me. Were my agreements going to hold up or not? But I was told subsequently, I can't verify this, but I told one quite a reliable source, that the underwriters decided to employ a completely fresh set of lawyers who hadn't been involved in the deal and say, that take that agreement and find a loophole in it that will allow us to not have to comply with this. At the end of that week, with BP shares trading well below the offer price, the government decided to pull the advertising campaign it had planned for the public. At the same time, the 17 main underwriters met to discuss what to do. While they agreed unanimously that the stock market crash constituted an adverse change that would warrant force majeure, they were divided about whether or not to actually invoke the clause. At the end of a tense meeting, eight banks voted in favour of activating the clause. Eight voted against. One bank, Kleinvort Benson, abstained. The Treasury was relieved, but tensions were rising between the government and Rothschilds. Nigel Lawson accused the bank, which was supposed to be advising the government, of changing sides. He was particularly angry that a document that Rothschilds had presented to the meeting was heavily slanted in favour of postponing the deal. Here's the BBC correspondent James Long. If anything was going to be force majeure, it was a market crash of that order. And this is where the politics of it crossed over so completely with the more understandable financial side of it. But there were human emotions running, you know, so strongly. And it was, I think, obvious to us too that Rothschilds was in a very strange position in all this. Being advisor on the issue, but also, you know, being very much in the city camp. The following Monday, BP shares fell further, dipping below 270 pence, well below the 330 pence offer price, implying big losses for the banks. The underwriters met again. At this point, no shares had actually been sold. The banks were sitting on 2 billion shares that were rapidly plunging in value. This time, under intense pressure from the US banks, some of which threatened to sue anyone blocking the force majeure, the group voted narrowly in favour of invoking the clause. Somewhere in my heart, there is a 
truth, even away from the syndicate, momentum was swinging behind cancelling the deal. The Bank of England was growing more and more concerned about how the deal might impact financial stability, and made it clear to the Chancellor that it thought the deal should be pulled. Even BP wanted out, but the Treasury was standing firm. David Simon, the BP Chief Financial Officer. We obviously had discussions with the government, and it was pretty easy to see within minutes of meeting with the Permanent Secretary in the sort of crash meeting that you have to have on these occasions. Frankly, the government had made up their mind. Lawson sought to frame his stance as a matter of principle. He was paying the banks to underwrite the deal, and he expected them to pay up. But the Chancellor also had his hands tied. Cancelling the deal would blow a £7.2 billion hole in UK finances, much of which had already been spent in the generous pre-election budget in March. Another problem was that BP had also decided to sell £1.2 billion of new shares as part of the deal to raise fresh funds. The government had actually committed to buying those shares and planned to sell them as part of the wider transaction. Pulling the deal would leave the UK government owing a huge amount of money to BP. But Lawson's principles were one thing, reality was another. As the clock ticked down to the official launch of the share sale, the feedback they were getting as part of the book-building process was dire. Unsurprisingly, given the precipitous fall in the BP share price, which at the lowest reached 254 pence, demand was almost non-existent. Banks received orders for just 71 million of the more than 2 billion shares being sold. Reluctantly, Lawson realised that ploughing ahead might have a devastating impact. Together with the Bank of England, he started to look for a possible third way. For two days, there was silence. Banks were getting nervous. Trading in the new shares was due to begin on the Friday. Then, at 10 o'clock on the Thursday night, Lawson appeared before Parliament. Statement, Mr Chancellor of the Exchequer. Mr Speaker, I told the House on Tuesday that the United Kingdom underwriters to the BP offer had invoked the contractual provision requiring the Treasury to consult on whether or not the offer should proceed, and I explained the legal procedures that flowed from this. These procedures have now been completed, and I wish to announce my decision to the House. It is that the offer should proceed. The government's practice throughout the privatisation programme has been to have government share sales underwritten. The BP offer was duly underwritten on the 15th of October. From that moment, the British taxpayer has been entitled to the proceeds of the issue at the offer price. Just as the underwriters have been entitled to the fees which they receive under the agreement unless the agreement were terminated. But but I do recognise I do recognise the concern that in current unsettled market conditions the sale could have an adverse effect on market sentiment. I have therefore agreed with the Bank of England arrangements designed to prevent a disorderly market in part paid BP shares. It was a bailout for the banks. The Bank of England effectively put a floor under the share price, offering to buy shares from the underwriters at a minimum price of 70 pence for part-paid shares, effectively 280 pence on a fully paid basis. The next day, the BP shares recovered, climbing back up to 267 pence. The government, 
and Lawson in particular, were keen to frame the rally as a great victory. They'd saved the deal from the jaws of defeat. But James Long soon started to hear a different side to the story. Everybody was heaping praise on the Chancellor's shoulders for having pulled this off and pulled it out of the fire. But then I got an unexpected phone call from somebody I didn't know very well in the city, but was calling from an organisation that was closely involved, saying I should look more closely about this. This is a different world, you know. I mean, these days I would have been able to call a mobile phone, lots of contacts would be close to it, etc., etc. But in those days I had to jump in my BBC car, head in from White City into the City of London and literally start knocking on doors. And mostly I couldn't get people to answer anything. Security men would arrive at the door and brusquely tell me they didn't want to talk to me. And then I struck lucky and I went to a very august organisation closely involved in the whole thing, knocked on the door and was invited in and wound up speaking to one of the people who'd been in the room in the course of all these conversations. And to my amazement, he told me that it wasn't at all as had been pictured The version I was then given was that a range of options had been presented to the Chancellor, a range of prices, and that what he had done is select what was an acceptable price for the support rather than dreaming up the whole thing himself. Long knew this was a big story. The government line that the Chancellor had rescued the deal wasn't at all true. But knowing he couldn't run the story based on a single source, however good, he set about confirming the story with a second source, which he soon got. He then called the Treasury to try and get a comment from them, which of course they declined to do. Finally, he started getting his piece ready for the news. But then, with just minutes to go before he went on air, a call came in. I was walking towards the news studio to do the piece when somebody shot out of a side door and grabbed me and said, they're looking for you all over the place as a phone call from the Treasury for you. So I went in, picked up the phone, and to my amazement, I wasn't talking to a Treasury press officer, I was talking to the Chancellor. It was Nigel Lawson himself. He said, I know what you're going to say. He said, you're wrong. I've got to tell you, you cannot say this. I know who's been briefing you, and it's wrong. So I thought, well, that was odd. I said, Chancellor, I've got two sources. I'm quite sure of what they've told me. I've phrased it carefully. I am going to broadcast this. And... He became quite distraught and, you know, continued to try and press me not to do it for several minutes. But I left that conversation thinking this is really odd because everything he's saying implies that he thinks I've been briefed by somebody who is against him. And it sounds as though he thinks that's come from number 10. I would love to have been a fly on the wall to hear what happened when he briefed Thatcher about it, but I can only guess. Lawson wasn't the only one who'd taken false assurance from that first day of trading, the rally in BP shares following the announcement of the Bank of England rescue scheme. Seeing BP shares shoot up in value on that Friday, most of the banks had in fact decided against participating in the rescue scheme, which would involve booking a slight loss. In the end, just 40 million of the 2 billion shares would be sold to the Bank of England as part of the scheme. Confident that BP shares would rally further, most of the banks decided to hold on to their shares in the hope that they could make a nice profit from selling them at a higher price. The decision to stick it out and wait for a further rally in BP shares would prove disastrous, 
After the brief rally the day after Lawson's statement on the Friday, when share trading resumed on the following Monday, BP shares resumed their plunge. The syndicate of banks that had underwritten the deal scrambled to offload their shares, which pushed down the price even further. The US banks were the worst affected. Over the coming weeks, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, Morgan Stanley and Salomon Brothers would report losses of about $300 million between them, directly from the deal. Around the world, the syndicate of banks would eventually rack up losses of £750 million between them, equivalent to more than £2 billion today. In Canada, those losses brought one firm to the brink of collapse. Woodgundy was one of just two banks that had underwritten more than 100 million shares that were to be sold in the country. Just before winning a place on the coveted BP deal, Woodgundy had been the subject of a bidding war, which had been won by First National Bank of Chicago. The US bank planned to buy its Canadian rival in a $200 million deal, but the BP deal brought the acquisition crashing down. As losses from the BP deal and wider market sell-offs started to rack up, First National Bank of Chicago pulled out. The collapse of the acquisition left Woodgundy itself facing collapse, which was only averted when the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce stepped in at the last minute, albeit with a much lower price than that offered just a few weeks earlier by First National. Back in the UK, the drama wasn't over yet. Despite some hiccups along the way, the UK government was happy. It had offloaded its stake and received the £2.7 billion in full. But, behind the scenes, trouble was brewing. In the weeks after the deal, BP shares struggled to regain ground and continued to trade 40% below where they had been just a few months earlier. An unwelcome buyer had spotted an opportunity. Speculation about tax cuts helped to rally shares midweek, but dealing was dominated by heavy trading in the partly paid BP shares put on the market after the company's recent privatisation. No one knew who was buying BP until the Kuwaiti government announced it had acquired a 10% stake in Britain's largest company. That's 600 million shares, costing over £1.5 billion. The Kuwaiti government which knew BP well and thought the company was massively undervalued, had secretly been buying stock in the market. Within a few weeks, it owned almost a fifth of the company. It was hugely embarrassing for the UK government, which found itself being accused of selling off the crown jewels to a foreign power. The Kuwaiti entrance came as a big surprise for BP as well, but it was clear the Kuwaitis were getting a good deal, says David Simon. You know, if you looked at the asset value of BP, seen from an oil producer in Kuwait with the oldest relationship with BP as a producer, you would think to yourself, buying this stock at 188 pence or whatever the price at the time, when we know it's worth 3.30 because the government wouldn't have pitched it there otherwise. You can see why any sensible financial political person in Kuwait would know what they were doing. It took another two years for BP shares to recover to 330 pence, the price at which the deal had been originally underwritten. But despite the stock market crash, despite the fight that broke out, despite the Bank of England having to rescue the deal, despite the acquisition of Woodgundy being scuppered by the fallout, those involved still look back on the deal as a landmark transaction. Final thoughts from Giles Henderson, the government lawyer. I think there was probably a slight feeling of 
sadness, dejection, if you like. On the other hand, I think the government felt that in all these unfortunate circumstances, the thing had been sorted in the best, maybe the only way it could have been, where the underwriters still underwrote, the government got its money, and the market eventually stabilised. So it did all work out, although it was a very uncomfortable ride for an awful lot of parties. Thank you for listening. This episode of The Syndicate was researched, written and presented by me, Gareth Gore. The editor was Matthew Davis. This has been a fresher production for IFR. When you contribute your fixed income deals to Refinitiv, they'll reach over half a million buy and sell side professionals around the world and be included in our industry-leading league table rankings. To ensure we're capturing your entire deal flow, visit contribute.refinitiv.com forward slash FI sign up or contact our team at contribute at refinitive.com. Make your deal count.